In a recent paper I published titled The Real State of Profitable SaaS, I wrote a section where I spilled some ministry tea. And one item I spilled was the fact that technology providers are struggling to figure out their partner strategy related to as-a-service offers. And partners are frustrated by this. The entire industry needs a big old therapy session on this topic. Well, in today's episode, we bring you one of the most senior and respected thought leaders on the topic of the channel, and he's going to help us kick off this therapy. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. I will be joined today by Jay McBain, a chief analyst at Canalis. So let's get this insight engine humming here. Jay, welcome. And let's start here. Can you describe Canalis and your role there? Absolutely. As of today, I'm now the chief therapist at, uh, at Canalis. So, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I get to wake up every day with looking at channels, partnerships, alliances, ecosystems. We know in the $105 trillion world economy that 75% of that flows indirectly. Mm -hmm. You buy your car from a dealer, you buy your TV from a retailer, you buy jars of peanut butter from grocers. Almost everything we do in our personal and professional life goes through others. And that was kind of how partnerships were defined for 43 years. And now we're starting to recognize all the other things partners do before the transaction in those 28 moments leading up around the transaction, and then now in subscription consumption models, every 30 days forever to get you a customer for yep. life. So it's a much broader concept now, and all the non-transactional moments are becoming more important than even the transactional moments that we've relied on in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I really look forward to this conversation with you because we spoke before the episode and you know, we're both in violent agreement that the channel has a really important role in the as-a-service world. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And I think you estimate by 2025 that these hyperscalers alone are going to rely on partners for nearly a third of their marketplace transactions. And at TSI, we are seeing born-in-the-cloud SaaS companies becoming more anxious to build out their partner ecosystems. So what are the top three reasons you believe partners are critical in this as-a-service world and, and helping around as-a-service offers? Yeah, the first thing is to look at the customer. So we're just going through a transition in the next four quarters where the majority buyer of as-a-service will be a millennial. And so millennials look at partners a little bit differently than generations before them, and they see everything as a team sport. Mm -hmm. So they know when they buy a SaaS deal today from a Salesforce, ServiceNow, Workday, Marketo, NetSuite, HubSpot, that it's seven layers that they're buying to drive the solution. But they're also working with seven partners on average. And that's a McKinsey stat. Wow. So the people that are advising the biggest boards or the biggest fortune companies are talking about this team sport now that surround your customer. Mm -hmm. Well, for an as-a-service firm, one of the differences going back is that, you know, I talked about the big number, 75% flowing indirectly. In the tech industry, the $4.7 this year spent by business and governments, it's 73.1%. So it kind of flows the, the bigger number. But in SaaS, the number is about 20%. Yeah. So, so partnerships were always different in that we don't really need partners at the point of sale. Right. And I think there was a 20-year lag in terms of really recognizing partner activity that was non-transactional and trying to quantify that and trying to figure out a program and underlying technology to make all that work. So I think that's where the confusion is. But now companies are, are turning that corner and understanding that 
partners are critical because they surround our customer. Yeah, that's a really fascinating stat about that 20%. And that tracks with me in terms of we look at traditional tech companies and how sort of partner intensive a lot of them are versus the SaaS. But part of that equation, don't you think, is the fact that, you know, the traditional reseller channel was very transactionally oriented as well, right? So they were kind of optimized for the transaction and not optimized for the ongoing touch and care and the things that you're talking about to keep the customer in place. So it's sort of like both the technology providers and the partners have to evolve here, right? To say, what is this handshake going to look like? And I know you have some great insights on what the playbook needs to look like to help this handshake work better. So let's start with this points versus precious metals. I've heard you talk about this before. Can you explain to our listeners what you're seeing there? Yeah. So just to follow on to your point about SaaS, one of the biggest differences resellers have always called on a buyer around CIOs or CISOs or mm-hmm. CTOs. I mean, in the IT department, yeah. that's where they've kind of called on. Yep. 75% of SaaS is sold to line of business. Yeah. So, you know, marketing folks. And in many companies, the CMO spends more money on technology than the CIO. Mm-hmm. You're selling to the you know, VP of sales and customer success and product and operations and finance and HR. And that's not a traditional buyer type. For a reseller. So this is one of the major differences. So the way vendors are kind of responding to this programmatically is that if I'm not paying things at the point of sale, because again, it only represents maybe 20% of my market TAM, how do we quantify, how do we measure, monitor, and manage these partner moments of value and then create a system where we can, you know, maybe even recognize that monetarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in those 28 moments leading up to the sale, How can we kind of measure those moments and measure that partner influence around the customer and apply some sort of value to that? So that's the points idea. Okay. So you you wrote an ebook and the customer read the ebook. And as we measure it, you know, for everybody who reads your ebook, there's a three times better chance they're going to buy our product. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone would look at that and say, well, that's quantifiable. In my SG&A costs and for the costs of, you know, marketing and, and acquiring a new customer in my own CAC, I could actually give some of that money over to the partner who's taking on that responsibility. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll assign points instead of money. So you, you wrote an ebook, here's 10 bucks. No, I'm going to, you wrote an ebook, let's measure it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if it has that kind of response, you know, let's, bucket up some money and I'm going to come to you with five or $10,000 and say, Hey, can you write three more eBooks? And if all of them keep with that three X multiplier, I'm going to keep coming back to you with more and more and more money until we're running a Super Bowl ad together. Mm-hmm. If we never hit a threshold. So that's the point. And then let's walk over to the people that run a podcast. Let's walk over to the people running events and the media companies and the peer groups. And there's 14 spheres of influence mm-hmm. that's around a buyer in those 28 moments. And let's quantify those and apply points to each of those. And as the points accumulate, they become quantifiable. They become monetary in terms of how we're going to move money around in this economics of partnering. So again, for the audience, so the traditional precious metal relationship is if you're a reseller, the more volume you pump through, right, you're going to go from being my silver to my gold to my platinum, whatever partner, because you're pushing volume, transaction volume. But what you're saying is in a points model mentality is you are def- defining, identifying points of value in the life cycle, in the buying cycle, and put and assigning points to that and say, hey, when a partner does X, 
there's real value there. I'm going to put some point. I mean, that's worth 10 points. Maybe that's worth 50 points. And then if I see partners, you know, basically putting more points on the board, I'm going to invest in that, reward that with, with, you know, marketing dollars, with, with compensation. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, absolutely. And this is probably one of the biggest changes happening right now. Yeah. Um, and, and as a service is driving it is the economics of partnering forever. If you look in the tech industry for 43 years, we paid all money at the point of sale. Yeah. What we did is we paid a front-end margin and we pay a, a back-end margin. On the back-end, things like market development funds and new customer bonuses and spiffs and all those things yep. would come in. And that's not just for tech industry. I mean, that happens at car dealers and agents and brokers and pharmacies and, and everywhere yep. uh, to support sales. And the best way to do a, a selling model is kind of that layered approach. You know, Get to that next level and you get more discount. Get to platinum and you get more services and support where the economics are changing because at that point of sale, you're paying everybody kind of the same thing. Right, right. And you're hoping at that point, you never want hope as part of your strategy, mm -hmm. but you're hoping that that partner did a bunch of stuff in those first 28 moments to get the customer to the dance. Yeah, You're, you're paying them to get the customer on the dance floor. And then you're hoping at that point that they stick around every 30 days forever to keep the customer dancing all night long. Yep. And the fact of the matter is in some cases that's true. In other cases, it's not. Mm -hmm. A partner might join an RFP at the last second, mm -hmm. be a dollar less than their competitors, and win the deal. And then they jump out of the deal, and they've made 20 30% of the deal for coming in at the last second. And you know that you overpaid that partner. But on the other hand, the partner that's been there since day one, doing all the marketing, selling, engineering, and you won the deal in your sleep, you know you're underpaying that partner because they took all the SG&A costs away from you and the more deals you can win in your sleep is exactly why you have partnerships. Mm -hmm. So what if I could actually, instead of just paying everybody the same, what if I could pay at those points of value and break down all of those things into maybe dozens of payments so that really good partner could make double yeah. what they're making now? And that partner who sneaks in at the last second and jumps out of the deal like right when they're done makes what they should make. And a marketplace would tell them they should probably make 3% yeah. margin for doing it. So, I mean, this is a great topic is one of the things I definitely wanted to, to talk to you about were, were these comp models and how they're changing. And, you know, the tough thing about it as a service, as you know, is, you know, you get that customer on the front end, but there's two things that are going on. Number one, it's not the old transactional model where the customer pays you all that money up front for the technology. They're going to pay you over time. So you don't get this big chunk of change at the beginning as a technology provider that you can turn around, carve out and say, okay, partner, thank you very much. Here's your X percentage. And then secondly, what you're chipping on there is okay, you brought them to the dance, but I don't know if they're going to keep dancing. Was this a good deal? Is this customer going to renew you know, a, a year from now? Because if they don't, as a technology provider, that was probably a, a losing deal for me, right? So again, playing back, you know, you're saying one thing to do is start really focusing on the front end, where are partners adding value to build a good customer, right? To get somebody there that is really going to be engaged and stay with you. And you should be rewarding for that as opposed to somebody that says, oh yeah, I found this customer. I threw him on your platform. I'm out of here. And that customer fails in a year. So so starting to differentiate there. And then talk a, a little bit about what you're seeing about this brutal reality. Again, is there's not a lot of money on the front end. So as a technology provider, you know, you can't afford to pay as much on the front end, but then how are, are our technology providers rewarding these partners in the long term, right? To keep the customer engaged and renew. What are you seeing there? Yeah. So it's kind of this every 30 days forever mm -hmm. uh, to go along a subscription or consumption model. So we know that, for example, a good implementation of our technology mm -hmm. leads to longer, stickier yep. customer. Right. Agreements. Right. So we want to reward good implementations. Mm -hmm. 
So we need to measure what that looks implementations, like. yeah, what it looks like mm-hmm. and, and differently and, and deeper than we ever have. We know that we're now facing an integration first buyer above price and service and support and all the criteria they may have had in the past. This year, integrations are number one. So we know that it's not how good your product is as a provider. It's how well you play in the sandbox. We now have customers who will buy a product that is 80% as good as the competitor if it works better in their environment. So now I want to start rewarding those integrators who are making sure that they're connecting all those APIs and connecting all the dots, creating these language models and building towards the future. I want to be able to recognize, measure, monitor, and manage those moments. Now I go to the next thing, which is managed services, which is now a $488 billion global business, half a trillion. Over one out of every $10 businesses and governments now spend are in managed environments. Talk about somebody that's there every 30 days forever. And they could be doing help desk. They could be doing backup and security and all these other really important things around the as-a-service model, but they're trusted. They're one of those seven trusted partners. And guess what? I should be measuring those managed services, Mm -hmm. connecting the dots to some of my own metrics, customer for life, cost to acquire a customer, and making sure that I'm recognizing. Back to the point system, maybe I'm applying points. You know, every 30 days that that customer keeps going on and hopefully I can apply those points forever. Those are the things. And underneath the three parts of the deal, before, during, and after, Mm -hmm. you've got all your technology alliance partners and your strategic and business alliance partners. There's now six different swim lanes that you might apply these points to really support this customer for life scenario with partners. So I'm going to tease a couple of things apart that you just said there. One is around the successful implementation. So it's interesting. We just dropped uh, an episode with Jim Roth, who's the president of customer success at Salesforce. And we were chipping on how do you metric customer success organizations? What should be looking at? And one of the things that Jim is very focused on is a customer success scorecard, which is really not about internal customer success, but but the customer's customer success, right? So how do we really have a scorecard that is showing is the customer successful or going to be successful. And one of the pillars of that is their is their technology environment. And they know if customers have a poor, you know, implementation, exactly what you're chipping on, right? So I think bringing those two thoughts together is, you know, a company like a Salesforce or any large SaaS provider saying, look, part of our scorecard with customers is their technical implementation and environment. And then we have partners involved there holding them accountable and rewarding them. Again, if the, if the customer is scoring really high and that was implemented by you, we're going to incent that as opposed to, to those that are not. So I think that those two thoughts are definitely connected there. The other thing I want to tease out is this role of managed service providers. And one trend that we see at TSI, so if you look at most SaaS companies historically, if a customer came knocking on the door and said, I want help managing the environment, I know you own the infrastructure, but I want administrative help or whatever. Most SaaS companies would say, look, man, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That's not what I do. I'm a software company, right? But to your point, there's a growing need from companies saying, I want a managed offer here. I don't want just the core technology. I want help here. And so do you believe that, because again, traditional reseller model, I sell, I implement or whatever, I move on. The strategic importance of managed service capabilities, do you see that same rise here. So if I'm a, a partner, that that is a, a trump card or a really important capability now, more so than maybe just, you know 10 years ago, what's your perspective there? Yeah, we, we absolutely are. And I'm going to go back to Salesforce as an example, because yeah. they were actually the first to do this. 
Salesforce back in the day, and this was Mark Benioff leading this, mm-hmm. quantified really the total cost of ownership, which is something that this industry has kept kind of undercover <laughs> because it was so bad. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but one of the ways of, you know, in the early days of the anti-software messaging, and then later on, it's like, you know, I'm going to do things differently than, you know, maybe a traditional Oracle or SAP or IBM software would do. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you the cost mm-hmm. of getting this thing to work. And so they published research at the time. And back then it was like $4.23 for every dollar of Salesforce to get it to successfully work. And again, a customer doesn't have to outsource all $4. They could insource a bunch of that and choose all through the different services where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it was what he called Ohana, mm-hmm. you know, to kick off every dream force. But it's here are all of our customers and here are our partners. Here's our employees. We're all sitting together. 180,000 of us are sitting together here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in San Francisco, the Ohana moment is that we all share in this Salesforce economy. And so what this drove is this for customers, they started to quantify the cost of implementation, the cost of a good integration, the cost of the managed services. And back then it was $4.23. Today it's Mm $6.19. The hyperscalers have jumped onto this quickly. Microsoft, you know, out in magazines talking about unlocking trillions of dollars Mm -hmm. for the channel. Yeah. And there's a $7.63 as a multiplier. Mm-hmm. We just did uh, AWS's last year. It was $6.40. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of telling customers that, you know, you may be consuming $100,000 of our product, mm-hmm. but you better have $600,000 in the bank yep. to get it to work. Right, right, right. It's actually a $700,000 deal right, right, right. to get this outcome that you're, you're looking to. So yeah. this is positive for partners because it tells customers that, Hey, this isn't just turn it on, you know, which a lot of early SaaS was trying to say, hey, just flip the switch and it all yeah, works. It and yeah, it exactly. Yep. And solves all your problems. Yep. It really doesn't. I mean, it's way less cost than implementing traditional software yeah. or hardware and other things. But in the end, let's just all understand what this is and let's actually map out and manage services and SaaS over the last 24 years has actually been uh, a struggle. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to Salesforce this week on this very subject. They didn't take a leadership position to show customers and to show managed service providers a road forward. Mm -hmm. Where the hyperscalers did a better job at AWS today, for example, you could make a dollar for every dollar that AWS sells in a managed environment. Mm -hmm. Divide that by 36 over the first 36 months. And that tells you for $100,000 of AWS, I could go make $100,000 divided monthly Mm -hmm. on a managed services contract, doing a bunch of great things that delight the customer. SaaS companies, and I look you know, to ServiceNow and Workday and HubSpot and other leaders, they haven't done a good job with the MSP market of saying, here's what the services ought to be, here's where your skills and certifications, competencies ought to be, and here's how much you should be charging for it, You know, really guiding them to delighting the customer in this every 30 days forever method, but I see that starting now. Yeah, I mean, you're on a really good thread here, and again, this general concept of managed SaaS, right? The fact that that SaaS re- could, you know, customers could benefit from additional managed services around it. I, I think two things. Well, a couple of threads here. Number number one is again what you were on. SaaS companies didn't want to tell that story. <laughs> they wanted to tell a story of you don't need that. It's out of the box, flip it on. It's super easy to use, which is we all know is not typically ever true with software. Secondly, customers, I think, have been raising their hand more and more to say, I do need that. I don't have the skills. I don't have whatever. And so now. The third move on the chessboard here is, as you're saying, these large SaaS providers are basically saying, 
you know, I'm going to stop shying away from this. I'm going to lean into this. And part of the therapy session I was talking about earlier is that what we consistently see is when a technology company, not a born in the cloud company, but when a technology company creates a new as a service offer. And historically, they were, you know, a very channel intensive company. They sit there and they go, oh my God, what's the story for the channel? I don't know because I'm going to sell it directly. Uh, there's no implementation for the customer on site. There's no ongoing on support. You know, like I like I just eviscerated their business model. I don't know what to say, right? And they and they're frozen by this, right? And they're really struggling. And what you just put on the table, I think, is super both simple and compelling at the same time. Which is, look. It's not that complex. The story is, look, for every dollar of this you sell, there is a managed opportunity that you can wrap around it, whether it's another dollar or $2, whatever, where there's real market need there. Let's help design what that value proposition is and lean into that. And that is a real real opportunity. But it's amazing how many of these technology providers just that light bulb hasn't gone off yet. Do you agree with what you see when you're dealing with the core OEMs on this? Yeah, and absolutely. And, And by the way, the extension to what you just said is, why would you consider selling it at all? Right, right. You know, we're talking about making 10% or 20% right. of the deal. We're trying to push you to make 200 or 300% of the deal right. at 75% margins. Right. So, you know, why would you collect the customer's money, take on that risk of non-payment, oh. send out Biff to collect the money, you know, when they don't pay? Like, why would you take on that cost right. when you could be out doing these wonderful, more beneficial, sticky type of services longer term? delighting the customer. And that's where the money is. But Absolutely. What, what's happened in SaaS forever, I mean, the, the big global system integrators, Accentures and Deloitte's and Caps of the world, they've been selling these you know, really expensive deployment, integration, implementation right. services. And, and they smile because when you sign up for the first project, they never end. Right, right. You know, you, you renew them and now they're into change orders, which are highly profitable. Absolutely. And, you know, they've been working on this implementation now for 12 years. Because it's never done. SaaS is never done. Right. And so w- if you could operationalize that better, you could reduce the cost mm-hmm. of having that managed service provider with a bunch of capabilities yeah. to say that, you know, I've got this many access to th- this type of skill. And I know that this is just going to be an ongoing yeah. type of relationship, type of operational type of, type yeah. of relationship. And, and I'm not just going to keep re-upping you on projects, which are obviously more expensive and right you know, more profitable for that provider. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, and you mentioned the large SIs like the Accentures, but if we turn the lens toward, uh, I'll say, you know, the more the midsize or smaller traditional resellers in the world of as a service and some of these, you know, the growth and, you know, managed offers, et cetera, how are you seeing their economic engines changing? Like how, how would you describe, because you deal with a lot of these channel, channel folks, you know, somebody that you saw maybe go from a very traditional reseller model to a model that's working in today's world, what are some of the key levers of their economic engine in the new world for the reseller? Yeah, just to put it into numbers first, I mean, the old, what we'll call the Microsoft channel from the 80s and 90s, almost half a million VARs in the world. Uh, As of this year, I talked about the half a trillion dollars in managed services. Mm -hmm. There's now 335,000 companies around the world that have at least one managed contract. Mm -hmm. So we're in a world where 86,000 of them are significant, 30 to 50% of their revenue is in recurring model. Mm -hmm. But if you just look at the broader scope, most of that traditional client server VAR channel is now in a more of a managed model. That's where they're going. Customers have taken them there and then they've changed their businesses. But 
you know, they, they do things, you know, slightly different. The way their P&L works, the mm-hmm. way they profit is different than a traditional services company, time and materials and bench and skills and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and it's basically just a sharing model with the customer. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be deploying white vans and, and I'm going to be doing sneaker net and things like that, here's what, you know, that guy or gal costs me. Mm-hmm. Here's how I can deploy them across multi companies. Here's the savings you get based on having no one sit on the bench. And this is the model here. It's kind of outside uh, in for the customer. Mm-hmm. Same thing is if I have Eloqua or Marketo skills, and so maybe does a digital agency and, you know, here's how I can deploy those skills across multi customers to your benefit that these yeah. people are highly skilled and they're experts at what they do, but you're only going to be paying on demand. So they're like a lawyer. They're going to be clocking in the hours for you. And as part of that on-demand, your managed contract gives you, you know, 10 hours of this, 20 hours of that, 50 hours of this per month. And we can meter that up and down over the course of this career is better than going hiring those people yourself, if you can even get them. And it's obviously better than, you know, projects that have a bunch of front end loaded profit wrapped yeah. around these people. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a model that's ready for SaaS. But again, back to the number one problem that I mentioned earlier, none of these managed service providers call on the people that buy SaaS. Mm -hmm. They're not calling in the lines of business. They're still calling. They're winning in security today. They're winning in data. They're looking to win in Gen AI because those are the IT folks that have been buying this forever. Yeah, it's a great point. And it, it leads to another question that I wanted to talk about, which is enablement and this handshake between technology providers with their SaaS offerings, to your point, that are most likely going to land with a business buyer and this partner, right? And so we've got to learn a new handshake. We've got to talk about what the new value proposition is for the partner. So maybe it's more managed services. It's different type of consulting, whatever. It's maybe customer success motions. So there's a discussion there. And there's also enablement of, hey, how can you be an effective selling partner for us, right? So, so what are you seeing there? Because my observation, again, on the OEM side of it, is that you know they have traditional enablement, which is often very much technically oriented, right? And, and you know you're going to get so many people certified, and you're going to do. And we're talking about a, enabling around business models and different types of skills. So you know what are some of the winning models you're seeing there related to enablement? Yeah, first and foremost, the winning models are the ones that recognize there's actually seven partners trusted, you know, around that table. So you look at, for example, that marketing buyer have been surrounded for a hundred years by agencies, Mm -hmm. now digital agencies. And there's hundreds of thousands of digital agencies around the world. 78% of them are now tech services companies. You have to go to, you know, page four of their website to see they'll do creative work for you too. You know, you flip over to a financial buyer, 81% of accounting CPA firms now who surround them are now tech services companies. Mm -hmm. So everyone's coming in, every professional services firm in every industry is competing to get into one of those seven trusted spots your enablement changes. So, you know, you talked about technical enablement, sales enablement, marketing enablement, all of the different layers of education, training, skills, competencies, skills, and certifications change in that environment in that you're recognizing that everyone is adding different value. Yeah. When I said seven partners, it didn't mean that seven VARs or seven MSPs or seven SIs are all competing for the same spot. It means that it's a team sport and you've got players with different skills that get to a positive outcome. You got to make sure that more of those team members that you recognize that could be endorsing you and, and delighting the customer 
leads to the metrics that you're trying to get to really kind of changes the way you, you kind of focus on getting them to where they need to be. There's a set of incentives and motivation, loyalty strategies, obviously a set of education training strategies, yeah. co-selling, co-marketing strategies. But the average program today has a hundred different elements to support this team sport. And, and so it's fascinating to watch what was kind of a linear, what you said was a gold, silver, bronze kind of practice metal program yeah. and all that deal reg and lead passing, all the stuff that used to go with selling, which is now this partner to partner underpinning and how to recognize partners and enable them not only for what business model they're in, there's about 20 of those, but where they sit in that customer journey mm-hmm. before, during, after that transaction what they're actually working on to drive value. As you describe that, I you know I think about the people that lead the channel programs for these large technology providers, right? These channel executives, and they grew up in a world of the traditional model, right? So they knew what type of enablement to do. They knew what kind of comp models were, you know, that worked. And now, again, you know, there's more as a service in play. Maybe their company's releasing their you know brand new as a service offer, and it's a completely different playbook <laughs> that they're going to be asked. So if, if you're somebody and you're, you're sitting in that channel chair and you realize it's like, I've never run these plays before, right? What type of coaching do you give to them? Because I think there are still a lot of them out there that are experiencing this sort of uncomfortableness around this. So, so what kind of coaching would you give them? Yeah. One of the things I study is, and I'm fascinated by, is the surrounding communities that people learn and get influenced inside. So just to go back to channel professionals, there's 10 million of them today on LinkedIn. So we're, we're kind of measuring you know, things like, what do you read? Where do you go? And who do you follow? Mm-hmm. You know, when your neighbors and friends earlier this year started asking you about Gen AI, you quickly had to go and like become the expert they thought you were right. on, on the subject. <laughs> right. I actually track what websites you went to, what podcasts you listened to. I mean, how did you become and who did you trust mm-hmm. you know, to get you to a point where you sound smart in front of your neighbors and friends? The same goes for all channel leaders. They're hearing about all these seven partners. They're hearing about non-transactional partnerships. They're hearing the name is kind of this ecosystem mm-hmm. of partners. Mm-hmm. I do have channel partners, channels of distribution type partners that sell. I have all these other co-marketing, co-keep, all the tech alliances. I mean, I've got layers upon layers upon layers. It all comes back to the law of a few. You know, what magazines am I going to read? What podcasts? What events am I going to attend? There's 218 of those. What associations am I going to join? There's 67 Mm -hmm. of those. Uh, There's a thousand what I call watering holes. Yeah. And on LinkedIn now, with ecosystem in their title, there's 14,000 people. And there's about 600,000 additional people who use ecosystem now in a description of what they do. So we're starting in this decade of the ecosystem to see this big shift of here's what I did for 10, 20, 30 years previously. But now in this new, both transacting, non-transacting partner world, here's what I now do. Here's the magazine I read. Here's here's what I listen to. Here's who Mm -hmm. I trust. Here's a hundred people who are talking this new language, who are giving me the future of incentives and training, enablement, engagement, or given me the underlying technology, the 233 companies that can help me measure these new partner behaviors. And this is this whole world that has become so important to these people changing their career to be more future friendly. Yeah. And if I'm meeting with an executive team, it's the first time they're leaning in, let's say, to as a service business models. The one statement I'll make to an executive team is, look, everybody in this room needs to get an MBA in as a service. 
it's all the things you were just on. It's different vernacular. It's different models. It's different thinking. And as a professional, you've got to lean into that. And again, the more senior you are in these organizations, you're successful because you were really good at the previous model. <laughs> right? You're a channel executive. You're like, I know how to build channel out. And I know how to get partners online. I can drive all kind of revenue in the old model. And so when this lands on your doorstep, I think what you just said, I mean, you got to go out there as a professional and look for those watering holes, look for the, the places where you're going to learn and understand that literally you're like getting an MBA on a whole new different set of frameworks and, and models. And if you think that this is just like you're tweaking your old model, I think you're kidding yourself. I think these models are dramatically different and, and it's encouraging. And the fact that you're saying, look, there's a lot of scaffolding out there that you can lean into, but you've got to aggressively lean into it. You know, what, one other thing I, I really did want to touch on because I know it's a point of contention, if you will, between the technology providers and their partners in these as-a-service models. And that is the, the data handshake. And understanding what's going on with the customer. Because now, if you're a partner, you get a customer onto an as-a-service platform, the telemetry is going back to the provider, right? And they're getting all kind of insight on what that customer is doing or not doing. And you're the partner and you want some of that insight, right? To understand adoption, to understand upsell opportunities. So what are you seeing there in terms of how partners and their technology providers are working around data sharing? You know, What are some of the, the best practices you see there or the encouraging things that you see there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one because no companies really want to share data. Right, exactly. It's, <laughs> That's right. It's a legal, it's a legal regulatory, governance, Contr security. Control, I mean, so just basic control. control. Yeah. Uh, the fact of the matter is good partnerships are more transparent than bad partnerships. Yeah. So if you have a partner that you're measuring on, you know, quality of implementation or quality of integration or, you know, some of these metrics mm -hmm. we talked about, it behooves you to share some of the core of the metrics that you're measuring them on. You know, if it is user logins, if it is value-based or usage-based or w whichever way, they should have access to some of this. And if you're on the same page trying to increase a certain particular metric, mm -hmm. you know, both of you should be staring at the same thing in real time. Yeah. And you know, could that partner take that and make that something larger and share it on X or share that you know, in public in a press release? I mean... I'm guessing that, you know, that's probably not going to happen because mm -hmm. they're not going to have context, anything above the 10 or 50 customers they have or right. above the town or city that they serve or industry they serve or segment they serve. So this idea that somehow letting out data on particular customer engagements mm -hmm. is going to somehow threaten or put risk on a, a provider mm -hmm. never tends to happen. So yeah. You, know, you got to figure out what those are. And there's a lot of technologies out there now which are double blind, which is becoming really interesting. It started kind of in the selling model where I don't want to share my CRM with any vendor. Right. They might take it direct. But if I could share in a double blind cloud where an AI kind of bot looks to my CRM, looks to theirs, does some mapping in real time, and then tells salespeople earlier in the cycle when activities are going on, mm -hmm. there's a net measurable benefit to that. Yeah, so let me just understand this really fast. I've not heard of this use case here. So basically by doing it in the double blind model, it, like if I'm the technology provider, I could say, look, you have opportunity X. I don't know what customer it is because it's double blind, but based on what we're seeing in the data, we recommend, you know, so we can help coach around that. I don't know who the specific customer is, but I have the parameters of that opportunity. Is that what it, it creates? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to sell a car and you recognize somebody went to YouTube and watched a yeah, yeah. video racing a Tesla, and then they read Motor Trend magazine, and then they yeah. came and configured a car on a particular manufacturer's website, you can connect the dots in those 28 moments. Right, right, right. You can get all those people together and say, "Hey, I think somebody's buying a car." Right, right. Got it. You know, don't help them through the next 14 moments. Yeah, got it. Uh, hopefully, you know, sell what I'm selling. There's a benefit to that. So these are companies, you know, like Crossbeam, Reveal, PartnerTap that are doing that particular thing. Mm-hmm. That's why I look at the technology SaaS behind partnering to kind of understand how we're doing this. So in data brokering, you know, on the implementations and things like that, same type of thing. You can double blind a lot of the different things yep. and, uh, you know, make sure that everybody has usable, repeatable, scalable kind of data to make themselves better. And that's where, you know, challenge people to, um, you know, share more in that Ohana moment yeah. than, than you would in the past. Yeah. And to go back to much earlier in the conversation here, you say, you know, good partnerships are built around transparency. And I think this data handshake is at the epicenter of that, right? I mean, because the data is gold. Data is going to drive quicker value realization for the customer. It's going to drive cost out of your model's partner. Your model is the technology provider. And so figuring out how to get everything you can out of that data is going to be the winning model. But like you said, there's got to be some trust there. There's got to be some transparency. And I think we have a little while to go yet still on that between the partners and the technology providers. I'm, I'm watching the clock here. I'm going to get one last question here. And this is related to the position of ecosystem leader. And so I was reading this article you wrote and you said, Microsoft replaced its top channel executive with an ecosystem leader. AWS, Google, IBM, and others have followed in the last few quarters. So what is this ecosystem leader compared to a traditional channel executive? What's the difference there? Yeah, let's uh, end this talking about careers. So in the 75% of world trade today that's sold indirectly, Mm -hmm. there's a channels department almost in every company. It's in charge of retail, in charge of resell, and franchises, brokers, agents, dealers, whatever industry you're in, pharmacies, whatever industry you're in. The leader of that organization, it's a solid six-figure job. Mm-hmm. Talking mid-six figures. Yep. Like five or six hundred thousand dollars a year. You have a bunch of vice presidents that make three hundred thousand plus dollars a year. Mm-hmm. You're doing all wonderful things running these linear programs. The new chief partner officer steps a layer above and reports to the CEO, is in the boardroom. 82% of CEOs today across every industry are investing more in partnerships. They're becoming tech companies, which means they have to become very tech-friendly. When 79% of people won't buy a car today, unless it has Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, these companies are being forced into being tech companies. So the chief partner officer is now a seven-figure job. It's double what that dealership leader would be making. Mm -hmm. It's the future of the company. You know, car companies will win and lose based on their tech integrations, both in front of the driver, on the experience, handing over your speedometer to big tech, below the driver, the electric motor and, and battery technologies, which will be run probably by three companies. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes partnerships as they go towards transportation as a service, mm-hmm. subscription consumption model. Repeat that for your toothbrush, repeat that for all your software. Every industry is going the same direction. The elevation of this person who recognizes all of the partner activities, transactional and non-transactional, every part of your customer's journey Mm -hmm. is a key part of the boardroom conversation, along with marketing and sales and customer success and product and operation, finance and HR. That's what we're measuring now. And there's at least 20 of these folks who are making these seven-figure paychecks Mm -hmm. and really driving the future of ecosystem 
partnerships. We're seeing it now in banks, insurance companies, pharmacies. We're seeing it over in manufacturing companies. It's pervasive. It's ubiquitous now. And that's one of the measurements of this kind of new era of partnering, where it's just one of the critical functions. We're watching CEOs now talk about go-to-market and routes-to-market at a layer of detail that we've never heard before. They're breaking out their service-available markets and service-obtainable markets like a SaaS company would. Yep. You have to shake your head and figure out you're talking to John Deere or yep. Kohler generators or, or, or these type of folks, and, and they're starting to sound like SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. What's my CAC? What's my lifetime value of a customer? What's my? And it's, it's brilliant, and it, you know that partnerships are inside of all those conversations. So what I hear there is you see a lot of headroom for anybody who's focused on partners, traditional channel person, even more headroom than there was traditionally because the strategic importance of these partners and this broader ecosystem is just getting higher and higher, regardless of what type of company you are, or what market you're playing in. If I've been around for 120 years and I'm about to lose 80% of my customers because I don't have one tech integration it elevates the role of the person who's going to run this tech integration for me. Yeah, fantastic. Well, hey, I really appreciate your time today. This is a great conversation. I'm sure the audience is going to enjoy it. Uh, I always end up with a question of the day. So here's a question of the day for our audience. There is no doubt partners can drive deals, adoption, and long-term revenue for your as-a-service offers. But are you designing and deploying a partner model that actually enables that to happen? Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.